0: Hello, and welcome to Entangled, the podcast where we explore the science of consciousness, the true nature of reality, and what it means to be a spiritual being having a human experience. I'm your host, Jordan Uclus, and today I'm joined by Will Etheridge, the founder of Origin Thread. Origin Thread is a men's clothing brand focused on leveraging NFTs to decentralize fashion and connect people to how their clothes have been made. In this episode, Will breaks down the definition of NFTs and the pros and cons of non-fungible tokens relative to fungible cryptocurrencies. From there, we discuss the mystique around Bitcoin's founder, Satoshi Nakamoto, and the opportunities for global redistribution of wealth provided by crypto. We then discuss concepts like cryptography, immutability, proof of work, and proof of stake. Finally, Will explains the business model for Origin Thread, why he chose to launch his NFTs on the Cardano blockchain, and the importance of free dissemination of information. Please enjoy. How are you doing
1: today? Yeah, Jordan, I'm doing really well, thanks.
0: And where are you talking to us
1: from, Will? So I'm tuning in from England's mild, mild west, a city called Bristol. It's just southwest of the UK.
0: And so, with that, it would be helpful if you could give us a little bit of just background on your life's history, what's taken you from the UK to India and then back to Bristol, and then we can get into the conversation from there.
1: Yeah, sure. So I'm originally from a town called Basingstoke, which is about an hour and a half south of London and studied at university I studied music basically music I thought would be a good way for me not to have to get a proper job and so I got the chance to study at the Royal Academy of Music I studied classical music so I took that up spent four years studying there graduated wasn't sure I wanted to spend the rest of my life in an orchestra didn't know what to do so I said to my dad you know what, what should I do and he said well The one thing he wished he'd done when he was young was live in a foreign country. So I thought, okay, that sounds cool. Quite lucky being an English language speaker that you can do teach English as a foreign language. So I did a course to do that and then got a chance to go to India and teach English there. So while I was in India, incredible place. If you pay attention, it can't help but not challenge the way you look at the world different way of thinking about a lot of things challenges your assumptions and yeah taught there absolutely amazing experience and while I was out there I started well first of all just some of my friends saw some of the scarves some of the clothes I had thought they were pretty cool so my friend Kurt shout out Kurt he was selling some stuff for me in the UK and then I came across the block printing the traditional print there so I started making shirts from that came back to the UK 22 studied music had no idea what I was doing tried to set up a business Did like a a summer of festival tours, managed just about not to lose all my money, and then basically bottled it. Thought I can't do this. Worked in sales and then marketing for about six, seven, eight years. Got to kind of halfway through the pandemic, and I thought, what am I doing? You know, I'm I'm making okay money. But when we're in the pandemic in life in, in the UK, where we're locked down, and life was basically just your work, and that really brought into focus for me the fact that that wasn't. I wasn't really getting anything out of it other than the the paycheck. So, yeah, so just, you know, took some time to work out what it is that I wanted to do. And I realized that I had this dream of this thing I wanted to do with the shirts. And I realized that when I was doing that, everything worked in my favor and people would want to come out and support me. And opportunities like this would just arise. And that that showed me that I, I was on the right track. So yeah, I went back into that at the same time, was diving more into the crypto space and particularly NFTs, trying to understand that. This was around the time that Bepool sold his everydays for $69 million or something crazy like that. So that made me really be like, okay, I should pay attention to this and kind of saw a way that I could combine what I was doing before with traditional craftspeople, not just in India, but with a plan to go around the world. And blockchain technology to bring people closer to the people who have made their clothes. Um, So that's what I'm doing now. A company called Origin Thread just sold our first series of NFTs. And yeah, we'll be pre-selling our first clothing collection later this month, hopefully. Yeah, I think that was everything.
0: That's great. Well, appreciate that kickoff. And I think a lot of different directions we can take the conversation from here. And so interesting to note that one of the recurring themes throughout your life seems to be that you're more driven towards fields where you can express your artistic creativity and and interests. And particularly, it sounds like music and fashion are the two that have really been a consistent theme across your life. Would you say that's accurate?
1: Yeah, I I like making stuff. I like creating stuff. So yeah, I, I guess I'm going in that direction, yeah.
0: And so starting with the music element, what was it that attracted you to classical music initially especially in today's day and age where that seems to be more and more of a dying genre? It was just how it
1: happened so the junior school I went to junior school in the UK is like from 6 to 11 something like that and the one I was at everyone who was there got a chance to learn an instrument for free and the school had a really good music system and they would kind of provide you with a beginner instrument and you could learn one and so some people learned the violin and I was like, no, nah, I don't really think that's cool. Some people on the recorder and I wanted to learn the trumpet. I thought the trumpet was cool. I thought that was a cool instrument. You know, you see it in a bunch of stuff. And the instrument I got given was called the tenor horn. And the tenor horn is only played in UK brass band music. But I did that. I enjoyed it. I would do music at the weekend. I would do like the county youth band. Then I started playing the French ones, I started playing the orchestra. It was just something I did as a kid and was good at and and enjoyed. You know, you have these amazing experiences when you play in music ensembles where it's something which is bigger than like day-to-day life. And you can get a glimpse of like this emotional connection you can have with musicians you play with. And that seemed more than... I don't know, just like writing or something else. It seemed more important. So that's kind of what drew me to the music.
0: And then as you later in life were more focused on festivals and events, was that a similar genre of music?
1: No, that that was basically me working out where I could sell shirts. And dude, I chose all the wrong ones. I was late to the game. I wasn't prepared. I didn't really know anything at the time about proper market research so dude i did like the asparagus festival where they were selling asparagus i had a stool there they're the asparagus man I, I didn't make any money on that one as you as you can imagine so yeah no that was all kinds i mean in, in the uk there's like a huge summer festival culture there's absolutely tons like glastonbury
0: well, that, and yeah
1: dude from glastonbury down there's glastonbury's like hundreds of thousands of people through down to like hundreds of people so that was a bad mistake if I did it again, if I did festivals again, I would do it more as like a marketing slash enjoy yourself experience than a, a making money one. the The ground rate you pay for a pitch just to be there, just to have a stall in these places is is so crazy that unless you're doing volume, but yeah, music festivals are cool.
0: And do you still make music?
1: Yeah, dude, I still play around with it quite a bit, more as a more as a hobby. So the first NFT release. I did one of the videos that I made whilst I was out in India. I made some music for that and then sold that as an NFT. I've got a few instruments, a few drums knocking around. Mainly now I do it as a way to relax. I find particularly drumming is like the easiest way to get out of your own mind. If you know how to play like a a djembe or something like that, within a few minutes of playing, you're you're completely focused on what you're doing and you're in like like a no mind kind of state. So... Play music for enjoyment, but not for, not for making the pennies.
0: That's one of the interesting, I'd say, common themes that I've come across. Starting just to look at more ancient practices and shamanic practices, just the ability of percussion instruments <laughs> and, and others to really get humans into a, a flow state or a trance state. And to your point, get out of have, that daily. Have you read Drumming you know, on the Edge of Magic? I have not, but it sounds incredible.
1: Do check that out. So that's by the guy who was the percussion player for The Grateful Dead. So, yeah, it's a very hit book, that one.
0: Awesome. We'll definitely check that out. And so then as your career focus shifted from music into areas of fashion and and block printing and, you know, I know our mutual friend Jeremy, I'm sure, was involved in the block printing process, which is how we got connected. But just would be curious to hear how your artistic expression evolved from music into fashion as well. It's more, dude, I think
1: business itself is the ultimate creative genre. If that doesn't sound too wanky, I saw that, first of all, sort of attracted to, yeah, the printing process, beautiful clothes, I think is important. But then also seeing that every aspect of a business, particularly when you're starting, is creative. And business, particularly fashion, can either be done in a beautiful way or in an ugly way and a lot of business is done in an ugly way where it's like just grinding the numbers out due to scale and being able to squeeze suppliers tightly and I think that you know that that's not very artful and that's not very you're not solving the problems creatively there and seeing business that could be done in that way so I guess what attracted me to more being an entrepreneur than fashion I think if I was just into fashion I would have done Fashion design that direction, but actually seeing how more broadly business is creative drew me into it. For example, in in a recent NFT sale, I used my music skills as part of a broader work, which was the NFT. So, particularly when you start creating content in marketing and you, you start creating content in NFTs, what I'm working on this week with the business is films that I'm going to be creating in india about the block printing process to be on the first shirt collections nfts so that's like creative in all directions i need to be creative in terms of what the film's going to be what it's going to look like what i'm trying to show it's creative in terms of using an nft within fashion in that ways is a new thing, and then creative in like how on earth do i afford this you <laughs> so, know yeah you have to problem solve and be creative and, and express yourself in all ways and i think the thing just tying it back to NFTs, which is cool about the NFT space, about blockchain, about the Internet more generally, is this thing of smaller, more creative competes better. We'll, we'll have one or two large players, and they'll just be able to eat everyone on margins, like when Amazon start doing nice men's shirts, it's like 90 percent of people can pack up at that point. but you can't ever be out-competed out on your own creativity if you trust that asset within yourself of your own creativity, which is basically your own way to express your experience of the world, no one can compete with you on that. So lean into that direction.
0: I think NFTs are certainly a topic that are of a ton of interest to everyone these days, frankly. And it'll be, I think, helpful for our listeners to dive in a little bit more to the technical aspects of what nfts are what you are looking to do specifically in fashion but maybe before we get into that whole discussion would love to hear a little bit more about your time living in india working in block printing and as you touched on some of the unethical ways that you saw textiles being created you know what were some of your lessons learned during that time in india
1: my time in india more broadly man lessons learned more of an emotional one than like an intellectual one is I don't know if you've ever read the book Steppenwolf I've not okay so Steppenwolf basically is this guy who dislikes the world He he's distant from it I, I felt that way and then I went to India and people's generosity will break your heart open people's ability to just you know I'd, I'd get on a bus and a guy my age would sit next to me and be like, oh, my my mother's prepared me some food for the journey. Would you like to share it with me? No one would do that in the UK. That just doesn't happen. And I really came away from that a different person. All of your assumptions have to be challenged because you look at things, huge cultural differences, a massive difference in a worldview which stems from, in the West mostly, we sort of monotheistic cultures backed by religion. Uh, And that's kind of Christianity, Islam, Judaism. Whereas in India, it's like a pluralistic polytheistic. And it's this idea of it's not this or that, it's this and that all at the same time. So there's a different way of thinking that comes from that. I mean, I just think it was nice to be in the sun as an English person for a year. (laughs) (laughs) That probably did me an enormous world of good. But also just really seeing... India is like a young developing country at this point, like an ascending world country. And they're really moving quickly. There's a lot of young people, like a lot of dynamism, a lot of people creating new niches and products and services for themselves. And that was really inspiring for me. It's just people getting after it. And it feels the same if you go, when I went to New York, I felt, you know, there's a kind of a buzz but in India, it's just a very young population and it's going to change, I, I think, a lot over the next 50 years. And that's exciting uh, as opposed to the UK where it's been sewn up for a very long time over here. Yeah. So, and we've still got the, the lady with the pointy hat. So, yeah, it's it's a different world. So, yeah, so many lessons in India. So grateful for the Toshita Foundation who had me over there. And yeah, it just, it just it's so hard to explain. I think even just living in a different culture, you can't really understand your own culture until you can see it from a different angle. So once you can look back at your culture you were born in from a different angle, it's only then you can start to understand it.
0: And as you talk about these differences in religious cultures from the UK to India, I'm curious, yeah. what did your own personal journey with religion and God look like, both pre and post living in India?
1: Man, so I, I remember I went to a, like a church of England school. There's lots of kind of stuff about God there. Believed in it as a kid. And then I remember as an adult having having a falling out with young adults, like 17, 18, the, the concept of God. in that I thought that this idea that only people of a certain religion go to heaven. I just thought, man, that's a bum deal because what happens if you're, what happens if you never hear about that religion? And then what, you still go to hell? That's That's just stupid. Like I was like, I'm not down with that. But then towards the end of my time at university, I started reading Rumi uh, at the same time as the Tao Te Ching and began to get in touch with God, yourself, the universe, whatever people want to call it. And then you go to some temples sometimes in India and you experience something that you can't put into words. There it seems to me the difference is in, in the West, it's like God is to be experienced via his chosen intermediaries so you got to go church or synagogue or or mosque or wherever and those guys will they'll they'll be like the go-between whereas in India I'm not a scholar so I, I may have misunderstood this but it seems to me that the fundamental understanding is that you are God and so is everyone else. And that's a different way of experiencing yourself and the world and the relationship between those things. I've done a bunch of yoga before I went to India, so in that way, but there, the spirituality of like God is everywhere, and there's all different aspects of it. So you you can find one which you can approach it more from, or, or resonates more with you. Or yeah, again, it's it's hard to explain experiences that you have where you're in a temple and you feel. A very different way, and I mean, you know you could the rationalist argument would then be, Oh, you know that's just the the heat and maybe some incense and the effect of the drumming and all these things, and you go, yeah, maybe, but I, yeah i I don't know still still very much a mystery, but something's going on, certainly
0: you know it's really interesting, will, and I'd say your path is not too dissimilar from my own, and I came across aldous huxley's the perennial Philosophy, which we discussed on the last episode actually and that really helped to change my perspective of this cross religious study that says, if you actually look at what the mystics across all these religions were saying Mm. that they directly experienced God, there's actually these really profound similarities amongst them, not the least of which being what you just said in that God is everywhere. Everyone is themselves God. And I'm curious if you were more introduced to those type of spiritual practices in India. If you felt you've subsequently had any of those type of direct experiences.
1: I don't know that something I watched before, I think before I went to India, I always remember it was a, it was just this TV show in the UK about this guy who was like an East end market trader, old school geezer, going to like different markets in the world and trying to make it and stuff and trying to see if he could turn a profit. And there's one where he goes to India He's been around the block a bit in the UK, but he's still had a tough time over there. But at one point, he goes to the temple. He basically, you know, he's a clever guy. He works out that there's this festival going on. He can sell. It's something that they'll give us as an offering to the God outside the temple. I think in this case, it was grapes and he make a bunch of cash. And at the end of the day, someone invites him into the temple and he he kind of goes in like hard face, East End geezer. And he comes out and it's like his face is completely changed. It's like open and loving. And he just says, I don't know what that is. So I think it's there. And yeah, I think anyone can access that. I'm trying to get out through that story.
0: Now, I can say as an American traveling abroad, there's certainly been times where I felt the locals were less than open to getting to know me, just given unsurprisingly, some of the views from other countries with regards to American foreign policy and economic policy and how that's impacted the rest of the world. And I'm curious if as a British person in India, if you ever felt any of those similar sentiments given the history of British imperialism, or if you felt that that's not really on people's minds anymore these days.
1: Mostly my experience of it would be I remember going to, I'll really mispronounce this, but Jilanwala Bagh in Amritsar. And this is a site where British basically massacred a bunch of Indian civilians who were organized to protest. And they funneled them into a very thin bit with no real escape and then just shot them off. Terrible, Mm -hmm. terrible thing. And there's a memorial for this in Amritsar. And I remember walking around it and looking at it and just thinking, like, How have these people been so nice to me? How have these people been so nice to me when in British in in India is very recent history? It's very, very recent history. No, mostly my experience is people incredibly pleasant. I mean, you you do get a little bit here and there, but mostly people are kind of just getting on on with their lives. If they want to be friendly, they'll be friendly. If, If they don't, they'll leave you alone. But yeah regarding the british history in india I'm, I'm amazed they people were welcoming to me and they'd have me as a guest and then you know just after that you go from there to the golden temple when people give you food and you sit on the floor with everybody else and it's interesting being a british person now dealing in textiles from india and you have to really think like okay we've done this badly before like how, how do we do this well
0: It's interesting. And, you know, it sparked in my memory, this story that I heard from Stan Groff. Are you familiar with with Stan Groff?
1: No, no. Who's who's that?
0: He's been one of the guys that's really one of the most well-respected psychologists in the country. And he's really been leading research on on LSD for several decades now. And anyway, he told the story about the first time that he tried peyote and was able to join a Native American tribe and sit in on their peyote ceremony. and some. So Stan himself is from the Czech Republic, but some Americans joined with him. And he told the story about how there was this Native American in the ceremony who was very visibly angry that Stan and these Americans were joining the ceremony, that he felt like it was an appropriation of their culture and that they were not supposed to be there. And then at one point, Stan mentioned that he was actually Czech, not American. And then this, this Native American man, during his psychedelic experience, came to the realization of these whole national labels are just that. They're just labels, are not actually who we are at our core, and that that's not the right way to judge people. And, and in fact, this gentleman had fought in World War II and had, in fact, bombed a town very close to where. Stan Grof grew up in the Czech Republic. And so he said, just completely changed his perspective of thinking that this was some man from a culture who had, uh, understandably so, that that the Native Americans would not feel the best about the Americans always and the history of what happened over the last 500 years. But then he realized that, in fact, this was someone whose homeland I had attacked and just brought home that full circle that we are all at our core, just people who things happen outside of our control and we're, we're all a product of the history of where we came from. And there's an element of all we can do with that is, is try to do better for future generations.
1: Yeah. Agreed, dude. I think if you, the labels get in the way and at the core of it, everyone wants the same thing, which is basically to be happy and, and not to suffer. Everything else on top of that is, it's just paint work at the end of the day and that's culture history story all of these things and that's not to say that injustices haven't been done and people have been given different starting points on life based on those historical events but at the same time people in India they realize that like it wasn't you know it wasn't this guy they're not blaming it on me they they're able to separate like yeah man those guys really really were bastards and fucked us over pretty bad but that wasn't him there. I don't know, they seem too busy moving forwards. I mean, that's not to say it seems there's within all countries, any of these stories can be played to play at people's emotions, divide people and ultimately control people. So that still exists. This idea of painting people as being separate. I think people will always use that. That's a way that you can control people. But yeah, I, I completely agree. I think we're all we're all the same family, and like all families, is is complicated.
0: So, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure a lot of people were recording this month after Christmas. I'm sure a lot of folks, yeah, right, <laughs> recognized that last month. <laughs>
1: yeah, it's, it's, it's always complicated, so it's always
0: complicated, yeah. All right, so shift and focus now to NFTs. Really excited to talk to you about this, and so maybe for folks who Aren't as familiar, would love if you could just provide an explanation of what exactly are NFTs.
1: Cool. So, NFTs are non fungible tokens. Now, that bit normally people's eyes glaze over straight away because fungible and tokens are two new things. So, start with the tokens bits, basically things which exist on the blockchain. So, like Bitcoin, if you understand that. The non fungible bit means you can't divide or replace it. So, to explain non-fungible understand fungible fungible is like two bags of sugar are fungible if you have one bag of sugar and i have another bag of sugar and we swap them you don't really care or you know glasses of water all of these things are are fungible you can exchange one for another but as an example of something which is non-fungible your driving license if we were to swap driving license um they're non-fungible it's unique to you so non-fungible basically means unique so nfts a lot of the attention at the moment on it has been of NFTs for artwork, particularly digital art. That brings in an idea of digital ownership, which is quite new because we're more used to digital possession than digital ownership. As an example of this, you can, if you buy some of iTunes, you, you don't actually own it because you can't sell it. So you've just bought access to it. You've got digital possession, not digital ownership. If you have an NFT, you actually have provable ownership of that asset, which means you can then sell it to someone else. So there's this whole new concept of digital ownership comes in there, which I think people can take a while for people to get their heads around. NFTs basically can be used to represent or do anything from, you think when you buy a house, when you buy a property, you're effectively, you're just writing your name on a ledger somewhere, which says Will owns this bit of land. That could exist as an NFT. The title deeds to your car, your anything, anything can be an NFT. So we're, we're right at the beginning of its use as a technology mostly people are using it as a way to create extremely speculative gambling tokens on it, it seems to me <laughs> but more broadly this idea of digital ownership is going to become quite important over the next five years or so
0: absolutely and so what would be a way to think about what would be like a project that would be more beneficial for an nft versus being something that's you know, it would make more sense for a traditional cryptocurrency that is fungible. Right.
1: So like an example would be tickets. Tickets would be really good as NFTs for a few reasons. So the global fake ticket markets, enormous. If it was an NFT, it'd be very easy to prove what's a real ticket or what's not, basically by checking the the policy ID, which has been used to create it. That means that you could then sell on a ticket to someone and they'd be completely confident it was real because they'll be able to check it which enables it for a slightly better secondary market. What's cool then is for the gig venues is they would then be able to get an automatically paid commission on that ticket because it's written into the into the asset itself. That's one of the cool things about NFTs you can program royalties into them so that anytime they're sold the original creator can receive a royalty. That's basically the the enormously one of the enormously beneficial features and then What would be cool with tickets then is they could be used to unlock future experiences because after the gig, you'd still have the ticket in your digital wallet. That could be then used to access a video, for example, of the gig, which only people with the Mm -hmm. NFT would be able to unlock. There's all kinds of things. Like there's a restaurant opening in New York, I think, where you get a membership to it and you unlock that with an NFT, which is cool because you could then get the membership but sell it on to someone else or transfer it to someone else for them to use. So I think we'll see loads of stuff for the NFTs. But yeah, t- tickets is an obvious example and easy to get around. Mm-hmm.
0: And then you would want fungibility for something like Bitcoin because there you're really using it more as, as a store of value. You don't care about necessarily the intrinsic value of the token itself.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, some if you go down like a privacy coin or like Monero coin or Zcash rabbit hole, they'd say, maybe Bitcoin isn't strictly fungible because each Bitcoin contains the record of its previous transactions. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if your Bitcoin can be traced back to like use in a you know a scam or something like that, that might become more problematic. So not strictly fungible. I don't really know enough to make a strong argument either way of that. But yeah, fungibility is money, tokens, stuff like that. Anything where it's not a, a unique asset, like a ticket is a seat whereas the $10, $10 you used to buy hot, hot dog is the same thing.
0: You know, that's really interesting. You talk about that concept of Bitcoin and being on different places on the blockchain because I would imagine if, say, those Bitcoins that are held by Satoshi Nakamoto, and there's a ton of them, I don't know if you know the exact amount, but if those, for example, were ever to transact, you would think that there's a good chance that those would be more attractive Bitcoin to own, right? Because there's this mystique about them.
1: Oh yeah dude definitely that, that's like the, the original I mean B- Bitcoin's like a religion right and particularly with the sort of the, the anonymous disappearing founder, white paper yeah uh, cult-like following, it is like a religion so it's like those are like the religious artifacts of like the, the Grail text so yeah they'd, yeah. they'd be worth, they'd be worth more than one Bitcoin so yeah I, th- I think that's a good argument to say actually it's not fungible
0: yeah that's interesting and for folks who maybe aren't as familiar with the mystique around satoshi nakamoto could you walk through a little bit about who he is and what happened there
1: man so as much as i know satoshi nakamoto is the anonymous creator of the bitcoin white paper so satoshi first sent out the bitcoin white paper which explains what bitcoin is how it would work to a mailing list some people think it's Hal finny he's appeared yeah. on the bitcoin forum Hal Finney was the first person i believe to reply to satoshi and then he got bitcoin up and running and then disappeared and incredible incredible techers to to be able to do that and create a trillion dollar world changing paradigm shifting concept and remain anonymous and i think that The roots of Bitcoin being in this cypherpunk cryptography culture of this guy managing to stay anonymous and people not to have tracked him down. Yeah, I think that's an achievement in itself in the modern age. But yeah, anonymous character, it could have been a person, it could have been a group of people who can say for sure, created Bitcoin white paper, launched it off the ground, and then disappeared. And it remains a mystery.
0: And correct me if I'm wrong, didn't Hal Finney die a few years ago?
1: yeah i was hearing this on a podcast the other day he died and apparently he's preserved himself in like the cryogenic stuff so interesting i don't know maybe he'll come back and be like and then satoshi's bitcoin start moving
0: yeah <laughs> that'll be yeah it. no it's interesting and I, I think there uh there's a documentary called banking on bitcoin that came out a few years ago that explored this idea and more concept and uh for me it, it sounded to like it was potentially some combo like Hal Finney, Nick Szabo, you know, Wei Dai, some of these early cryptographers. But it's interesting. I mean, now as I now that I've even thought more into spirituality, like could it have even been some supernatural entity? You know, it's as crazy as that sounds, I don't know if that's yeah. Know. Man,
1: I like I that's a, that's a new ingredient in the mix. Satoshi was an alien. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it could be. You can't say, you can't disprove that. So it's still up in the air. I don't know how likely, but I think think that's part of the strength of Bitcoin as well because if it was attached to a human founder, all humans are, you know, everyone's got a skeleton in the closet or two, so it'd be easier to cancel it or attack Bitcoin by attacking the founder. And because you don't have that, it removes that point of vulnerability, which I think is... Is really part of its enduring mystique. So I think it's just a masterstroke. I don't know. Can can you award like the Nobel Peace Prize or the Nobel Prize for Economics? An, an anonymous person?
0: That's funny. I think it'll be the first. I think it'll
1: yeah.
0: be the first. Do you have any idea? Has that ever actually been up for discussion?
1: I, I don't know when else it would be, right? Because it's like no one else is done that as just being done something so as far as i'm aware so remarkable as an anonymous person because it's only because of cryptography that he was able to do that in the first place
0: yeah well i'm even saying more so has the nobel prize committee actually thought about ordering into satoshi
1: i don't know but they should yeah Um, i think at the moment if you're in like the bitcoin crypto world then you can kind of see the way it shifts the power axis and the ability to control people ultimately by controlling their finances but probably the i don't know i don't want to speak for them but i can imagine like the nobel committee in my mind they're, they're a bunch of they seem stuffy it seems stuffy yeah, you know, feel, words yeah. like nobel committee
0: i, I get that impression as well Yeah. i don't know if
1: they've gone all the way down the bitcoin rabbit hole yet so
0: yeah. And to be fair to the Nobel Prize community, I don't think that's specific to them. I think that just conventional science in general. Yeah, right. Like like a yeah,
1: I don't, I, if the Nobel committee are listening, I'm sure you're all great chaps. But uh, sorry for <laughs> <laughs> my assumptions.
0: Okay, so do you have any concerns that as these cryptos like Bitcoin and Ethereum get wider spread adoption that you'll still... Have similar dynamics where the very wealthy sovereign wealth funds and hedge funds and basically all the people who have the wealth today will see the rising tide and then end up still owning the majority of cryptos. Do you, do you think that that's a legitimate risk we should be thinking about?:
1: Yeah I don't think I don't think, the, I don't think the, the power balance of who owns the capital, I think rich people are still going to be able to stay rich. they're probably too far behind to be the top people now though at this point. There'll be many, many people who are a new rich. Where crypto's value is, is that it provides equal access opportunity in time, hopefully, to, to the same financial system. So for people around the world who might struggle to access financial products, I think crypto will be important. For places in the world where there is really no financial infrastructure as it stands, I think will be important. I think it's important that the that, that sort of axis of power is shifted, that now you can make a decision. Okay, well, I don't really agree with the way the money is being run. Like the first Bitcoin block is inscribed on it times, I think it's January 2009, Chancellor on Brink of Bailout for Second Banks. So that's like the UK financial crisis he's referring to there. So it gives people a choice of a different... Financial system. I think it gives people assets which can't be seized by the state so easily. And I think that really starts to alter the power dynamic. It gives assets which can be moved across borders. So you look at like the remittance, the global remittance market. So I I don't think it's like implement crypto and then like utopia. I think it's implement crypto and then you can choose which playing field you play on. So you can choose where you want to store. And exchange your value rather than just being stuck in you know gbp or usd or, or whatever it is but those guys are still powerful that you, even if they're completely late 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 to the game and don't switch on all five until five years time there's still enough power for them to get in on the game but some of the some of these big bitcoin people are so far out in front at this point yeah that i unless someone goes a hundred percent all in they won't be able to catch them so It may be new boss, same as the old boss, but yeah, I I don't think it creates a completely equal world, but I think it also gives people an opportunity who are, who get in still now is still probably early in the grand scheme of things. And yeah, and are right. Basically there's still opportunities to, to change the, the situation.
0: Yeah. I think that's really well said. And to your point, even in the realistic scenario where, crypto doesn't solve all the world's problems with regards to wealth, income distribution. If you just look at where the power dynamics lie today and what percentage of the population controls, what percentage of the wealth, I mean, it effectively can't get much worse. So (laughs) if anything, it's going to help.
1: I think the thing which is more important is if we then have a game where holding large amounts of wealth isn't the main driver and also people have... More of a chance of getting more towards the quality of opportunity globally as well, and I think that's really going to shake things up when you start having someone who's 19 and you know part of the ascending developing world who can now access a, a remote a software engineer job and be paid in cryptocurrency by the minute automatically. I think it, it massively changes the shape of how work's done and how people do work and. I think all those things are super exciting about it. I think it hopefully it will improve the way nations and governments use their their finances because people now have a choice, I think which is enormous. and you know that you don't need to be like a hundred percent crypto or like a hundred percent sort of legacy system. You can split between the two and I think people will choose to do that by what suits them better. So I think it gives more power and freedom and autonomy to the individual which is a step in the right direction.
0: Absolutely. And I think also the importance of no third party for remittances, right? Where it's a lot of wealth is lost from folks who are immigrants working in a different country and trying to send money back to their families back home. The tr- traditional financial services firms would take massive amounts of those, like 30% of their remittances, just based on the fees, you know, the Western unions of the world. And so just being able to help alleviate that one problem already has served as a really important use case for the viability of cryptocurrency.
1: Yeah, exactly. And a lot of the times those things aren't even due to malice particularly, it's just due to operational cost and you have crypto and all, all you need is a wallet on a mobile phone. You know, it's, it's, it's an obvious choice, isn't it? So I think things like that are enormously beneficial, but we're also still so early into the blockchain technology it's like it's like the internet's just been fired up for, for yeah. a little bit no one could have predicted amazon facebook google and all the pros and cons that came from from all of those things
0: and well i'm glad you brought up this idea of facebook google amazon the pros and cons that they brought with them because i think it's important that we remember that with any new type of technological development there's always negative externalities that you don't expect But that doesn't mean you should stop technological progress. It just means you got to continue to revise and and figure out how to solve those problems. I think one perfect example of that is the uh, complaint that Bitcoin uses so much energy in, in mining the blockchain. And I think the counter argument is that, look, there's obviously issues with proof of work. And that's why a lot of other exchanges are moving to proof of stake to help reduce those energy costs. But it's, again, one of those things that's always going to be an evolving solution. And just because there may be Some negative issues associated with it doesn't mean you throw the baby out with the bathwater and you just got to keep reinventing and and progressing and figuring out how to solve those problems down the road.
1: Yeah, dude, completely. There's always trade-offs and you replace old trade-offs with new trade-offs.
0: The one I always like to uh, highlight that traffic accidents were at their highest rate ever when we transitioned from horse and buggy to the car, right? And (laughs) it makes sense, but I don't think anyone today would say, well, we should have just not started driving cars.
1: Yeah, I think the key is is just to make sure the thing that you're doing isn't going to like destroy all of humanity. And, totally. So yeah, running running the electricity bill high for a few years is probably okay. Yeah, being like, hey, let's just see what this new nuclear weapon does. It's probably less okay. So it's like a sliding scale, also, of new technology. But yeah, it all progress is difficult. It's, it's really hard. Just even staying still is really difficult. So. Yeah, I, I don't think we'll ever get to this like utopia where all the problems are solved. I think we'll just have other problems, different ones, new ones.
0: And so as you talk about how prevalent fake tickets are and also counterfeit artwork is, again, this is some of the really exciting solutions that NFTs can help to provide. And so we'd love if you could explain for the listeners a little bit more about what is cryptography, what is immutability and why are these beneficial for in- incorporating into artwork? In
1: fashion, oh man so cryptography cryptography is the ability to encrypt something so you'll have public and private keys so for example if i encrypted something with my private keys you could unencrypt that you could decrypt that sorry with my public keys if you encrypted something with my public keys only me with access to those private keys could decrypt it so What this cryptography gives is you you sign a transaction, effectively. When you put a transaction on the blockchain, you, you sign it with your own private keys. So what that gives you is the ability to say, in the case of art, this person or this set of private keys has signed this message or this piece of artwork at this time. Immutability, it can't be changed. Once something's on the blockchain, it exists there forever so as an example a transaction goes through from the artist and they say this is piece of work it's signed by these keys that's always there no one can retroactively go back and change that information
0: and so diving specifically into what you're doing at origin thread could you walk through how the technology works and how you're solving problems for the fashion industry yeah so origin thread is basically a men's clothing brand but it's
1: At the moment, the only brand that uses NFTs to connect men with how their clothes are made. So, the NFT is really solving a few problems. The first being actually just authenticity and provable scarcity of a garment. So, lots of counterfeiting in the fashion industry combined with quite a few high fashion brands. If they don't sell goods, they would prefer to quite literally burn them rather than reduce the cost of them. So, there's kind of artificial scarcity sometimes in luxury goods. Um, with nfts it'd be provable firstly that a garment is authentic and secondly that only a certain number of authentic ones exist and you'll be able to see that because it's on a public blockchain the second problem is really the problem of transparency now it's quite easy to greenwash as a brand or, or not even have people think about where their clothes are made who's made them So we're going to be using the NFT to store our supply chain information. So in the beginning, this will be just a a link to an invoice from our suppliers. So we're saying exactly who our suppliers are. In time, we'd like to get to the point where we pay our suppliers in cryptocurrencies, which allows us to link to those transactions on the blockchain. So we're not just saying, okay, we've paid our suppliers well. It allows our customers to actually audit how much. Has been paid to make their garment and really doing that to try and have people begin to think about how is it possible i can buy a you know a men's shirt collared shirt for twenty dollars it takes six hours to stitch one of those things the retailers marked out by two and a half times and so is the manufacturer so it's cost four dollars to make how is it possible to do that having people thinking about that and the third is using nft as a way to store media so I think it's important for people to be able to look and see, okay, the people have made my clothes, these are the people who have made it. But I think also there's something beautiful in actually being connected to how stuff is made. And particularly if you're using craft processes and particularly if you're trying to make stuff as well as possible, and then the NFT can be a media container as well. So the first launch of shirts we're doing, there's going to be a film, a couple of films we're making in India, one with the cotton supplier we're working with, one with the printing supplier. And then we're also going to make a third film in the UK with our cut and sew supplier. So the NFTs will be used to access those bits of media as well. So it's kind of like a rich media digital tag. I should say at this point, I, I don't know if this is going to work. I don't know if people are going to like this. We're still getting towards our sort of our first release, but it's something to try. And I think how we go forwards, it might not be in this final form, but yeah, it just for me is interesting to explore the intersection between those two interests and and, and things that I'm interested in.
0: That's really cool. And Will, one of the things that I I found really fascinating reading through your Medium post was to your point about how costs are kept really low. And I think it, it mentioned that about 20% of the world's cotton supply comes from the Xinjiang region of China. And so just would love to hear some more about yeah. that. Yeah, I mean... The history of cotton farming
1: is the history of horrible labour practices. Slavery, you know, obviously it was massive in cotton, and cotton farmers who are paid well still aren't paid well. It's an incredibly precarious life, but a lot of it, yeah, from from China, it's still, you know, there's lots of reports of incredible human rights abuses there of the Uyghur people, and the challenge is unless people are thinking their clothes have been made somewhere, somewhere by someone, all these objects we have in our life where they're the technology and the techniques behind them become invisible because they're ubiquitous. We see clothing everywhere. So we don't stop to think that this is actually something which has been made somewhere by someone. It's just, these things appear like fully formed and on the Amazon page or on the nearest shopping mall. And until we actually start to peel the onion and say, okay, these are the processes which are involved in that. It's easy for brands just to, not say anything for people not to think about it, but it's like all things. Once you bring awareness to something, then you can actually start to work on it. So, so the goal with Origin Trade is you, it's never going to be a big enough brand to take on H and M or Gap or these you know global monster corporations, but hopefully it can make enough people start to think, and then you know maybe say to some of their o- other people, hey, would you be willing to show your receipts? Would you be willing to show who you bought things from, and and the thing is, with putting stuff on the blockchain is the sourcing decisions I make are going to stay there forever. So you're certainly less prone to cut corners when, when you see things that way. You know, there's, there's, no, there's no deniability. It's all there. So you're operating from that point of transparency to begin with. Yeah. Um, you know, you're competing with the, the big guys in a way that they can't compete. They can't alter their business model to do that. You know, you imagine the meeting where the marketing guy goes in. It's like, hey, I think we should put our invoices online for everyone to see. <laughs> you've lost your mind. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, you, using that as an angle to, to kind of cut in and attack where, where, where they can't.
0: So then walk me through the rest of the economics, right, of those major corporations and, and fast, fast fashion providers. Like you said, call it $4 of that $20 shirt. Is going to making the shirt like who's actually getting that? You know, where are these work, what what countries are these workers in? Typically,
1: yeah, well, it, it completely depends. I mean, there's loads of people doing things really, really well. There's loads of companies doing things really well, and there's loads doing things badly. There's a lot in the developing world, in places like Bangladesh, in the COVID crisis. Like a few suppliers just didn't even pay these people. They just said, "No, we're not paying you." Wow. The challenge is, is it's when you're seeing these jobs as being unskilled so if your mind says "Oh, garment manufacturing is an unskilled profession we should pay the people the lowest amount we possibly can then you kind of get slightly jitty clothes and people who are replaceable whereas when you actually say okay i want to find skilled craftspeople to work with skilled tailors and seamstresses to work with then those people need to be paid well and you know not everyone can afford to buy clothes which are made in that way which is a challenge but i think a lot of people can particularly clothes which last well so a company that i, I love for example i think it's good to talk about people who are doing it well nudie jeans it's a swedish denim company incredible sustainability incredible transparency with what, what was is. the name of that again nudie n-u-d-i-e okay and yeah in, incredible jeans done incredibly well and they last a very very long time so the sustainability incredible as a result of that they will repair you for life so you pay quite a bit in the beginning for a pair of jeans but if you think in terms of cost per wear rather than like initial cost these things are much cheaper so yeah i think it's seeing clothes as not being things which are throwaway and disposable and actually things which should be loved and preserved and cherished and the kind of making good clothes using good people to make those clothes the sustainability of it all those things go hand in hand
0: I think that's a really great point. And you bring up this idea of, well, maybe not, aren't able to afford the textiles that are made that way, but it's also, I think, endemic of just our culture in the West of materiality. And I have to have the latest fashion. I'll just throw this out in a couple months after I've worn it a few times, like when you're just buying less clothes, but very high quality stuff that you then take care of, it becomes, you know, much different cost decision analysis. Yeah. I think
1: you know, my old man, my dad always used to say, buy cheap, buy twice. And so as an example, so if you read the Terry Pratchett books, it's all the Sandvines theory of economics. Uh-uh. So it's just a fictional character in this book, but he's talking about boots, like policemen's boots. And he's saying that, you know, you, you buy a cheap pair for $10 and they last you six months. You need a new pair every six months. or you buy an expensive pair for $100 and it lasts you 10 years. It's like actually the having less money keeps you poorer in that respect. So, you know, I, I have a pair of English leather shoes, which I bought 10 years ago for like 120 quid. And they're still going absolutely great as opposed to like a pair of 50 pound shoes, which last you two years. So, yeah. it's much more expensive in the end. But, yeah, we want we want it now and we want it cheap and we want to flip the fashion every few months. So it's not sustainable. It's not good. And, you know, yeah. you just you, know, less, you have less good clothes.
0: And it has a lot of parallels to me to the food industry, right, where it's you hear the same argument that fast food and prepackaged food is just cheaper than whole foods and natural foods. But again, it's, you know, a lot of that stuff is literally chemically designed to make you hungrier. Whereas if you're eating whole foods, natural foods, healthy fats, like you're, you're satiated on much fewer total calories because you're actually getting the nutrients you need.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's definitely not cheaper when you factor in the doctor's bills you know it's like you either pay now or you pay later paying now to eat well is yeah it's it's like all these things it's delayed gratification though and it's you know it's it's tough being a human in this modern overwhelming world and you see a McDonald's advert every 10 seconds on every media that you consume it's you've got to fight against these things at every step because they're endemic all of these things Yeah, so you've got, got to pick your battles where you can and just try and move a bit closer to a slightly I don't know, but just better way. Again, everything you're always trying to make the thing that comes before you better. Like I don't think these businesses set out to be, you know, exploitative, but it just comes off the fact that when you're a publicly traded company and shareholders need value, and the person making the decision about the sourcing has never been to those places, they're just picking A or B on a decision sheet. Then that's how it happens. It just happens as, yep. a, as yep. a factor of scale, and that's what's cool looping back to the blockchain, the NFT, these things, is that I think these companies die a death of a thousand cuts. So it's not like one person arises and you know knocks them off their perch, but they yep, lose yep. 0.1% of their market share a thousand times and see you later.
0: And I think to that point as well, as you're talking about scale, and part of what excites me so much about NFTs and, and cryptography in general is just the ability to... To reimagine the way that we share economics. I mean, because to me, as I've started thinking about just the the fundamental principles of capitalism, the thoughts of growth and of scale and of maximizing profit just inherently creates conflicts with your suppliers and your customers, frankly. And so I think it's really cool what you're doing with, with the fashion industry and just more broadly what we're seeing happening in the crypto space. Yeah, I think it's
1: easy for me to say this now, but you know, in ten years' time, we might have listened to you. And I'm like, no,
0: I want more.
1: So it's always easy to say that, but yeah, I, I don't know. I think people have realised that just more and more and more isn't always better, and that's where I'm kind of interested about the East and West, India Western world thing is with developed a lot of incredible technology and methodology and just even the way we organize and structure businesses all these things are incredible achievements but if those things are lacking a spirit within them they're just they're just production and consumption machines whereas as you say okay you you can make a a small business you can do things well you can pay people well i'm never going to make as much money as zuckerberg i'm never going to make as much money as bezos but i i can make enough money and if you don't, the people that need more and more and more, it's because something is missing inside and more of what you've already got isn't going to fix it. So go to India and share food at the Golden Temple and then you might <laughs> I
0: have a different view. Yeah, I've heard it said the gap between more and enough never closes. Yeah, in
1: the Tao Te Ching it says knowing when enough is enough is always enough.
0: <laughs> That's awesome.
1: It's a good one.
0: So for origin thread, do you know specifically where you're going to be sourcing your materials from? And have you like have you worked out an arrangement with your with your local suppliers or how, how is that all gonna work?
1: Yeah, so that's I was in India in October of 2021. So just gone meeting with cotton suppliers and printing suppliers in India. So I've got my suppliers for the first collection. And then those are gonna be cut and sewn in the UK still nailing that down with suppliers here but yeah so knowing the suppliers and then it it really is just start with shirt number one there's going to be 50 of them work out how to get around that manufacturing loop the first time because the thing that i'm learning currently is going from sampling to production run in clothing manufacturers quite hard suppliers will say they can do something and not perhaps be able to deliver that quality so at the moment been solving quite a few different problems. The problem of making the shirt, the problem of making the NFT and doing the media of that, and the problem of selling those things at the same time. So really this first one is getting around that first tip of that cycle. But moving forwards looking to work with materials from all around the world. So what's beautiful is there's people doing things beautifully everywhere on Earth. And there's fabric traditions at every part of the globe. I mean it's one of the threads that connects us all is all have clothing we've all figured out ways of doing different clothing and there's many ways of doing that which are incredibly beautiful and produce beautiful results and sure they can't compete with you know screen printing at industrial scale but why bother with that so with origin thread looking to basically tell the story of anyone that's doing something beautifully with regards to fabric whether that's cotton farming or stitching sewing whatever it is looking to connect people with people who are doing it well
0: and so if listeners want to sign up for the NFT drop, like how does that part of the model work?
1: Best thing is just go to originthread.com. Follow us on Twitter. I think it's literally just at Origin thread, And stay tuned to there with a mailing list. Uh, I was going to be releasing the first batch of shirts actually just this weekend, just gone. But at the last moment, we realized one of the suppliers wasn't quite up to scratch. So we've delayed that while we're waiting to get back some samples from a couple of other cut and sew suppliers here in the UK. But yeah, best place is just on Twitter. Everything will be announced on Twitter.
0: And then if customers want to buy a shirt, are they also buying an NFT or how does that work?
1: Right. So what I'm doing for the first collection is I'm actually using NFTs to do a presale. So it's like crowdfunding, but you'll get an NFT, which is your token to then unlock Uh, the shirt. uh And then that will be used. You'll get the, Obviously, the physical shirt, but then the digital accompaniment for that, which contains all of the content, all of the source and information. So in the beginning, you'll, you'll effectively get two NFTs and a shirt. But then moving forward, you'll be you get the shirt and, and the NFT of the shirt.
0: And so if folks want to participate in this crowdfunding, will they need to set up a wallet and have some money in Cardano?
1: Yeah, exactly. So that's that's actually one of my tasks for this week is to write like an onboarding how to use wallets, how to use NFTs it's really quite simple but yeah you, you'll need some ada and a cardano wallet reasonably simple things to set up but yeah then one of the things which has been interesting for me is working out what my i don't know if you know seth godin at all his work he's a marketing guy he's pretty interesting he's really great insight into the marketing world and he, he talks about this idea of a minimum viable audience so what's the smallest possible audience that can work for your project VV1? V V1? So for me, that was basically people who already already own NFTs. So other than this podcast interview, all of my sort of marketing efforts so far have been focused on the existing NFT community and just start to work out from there because those are the ones who I'll need to spend the least amount of time explaining NFTs to. You know, I figure NFT community is probably 70%, 80% male. Most of those guys wear shirts, I would guess. So (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> it's, it's, it's like
1: that that's the first bit of the crossover rather than going towards the fashion market who the nft is kind of a new thing particularly for this first version where people are buying it before they'll actually be able to see how the nft works and looks i think once <laughs> i've got one of that out into the world and people go ah oh, okay i understand that or the thing i really hope is that that user experience of someone saying hey man that, that's a nice shirt and then they're like, hey, yeah, check this out. This isn't an NFT. This is all the information about how it's made. Hopefully that will start to bring people from outside the crypto NFT blockchain world into it. But my sort of broader bet is that NFTs, everyone will own an NFT in five years time. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. at that point, I'm we're really ready to go.
0: How much are you expecting to sell the shirts for in this first go round?
1: It's going to be quite expensive. It's going to be about 150 UK pounds, about $200 needs to be about that expensive to pay everyone well to give you a breakdown on my cost since that would at 50 the cost of media just of the videos that will be on each shirt is going to work out as about 45 pounds per shirt now the thing which is cool is obviously media scales so when you do 500 shirts that becomes four pound 50 which is much more <laughs> much more palatable but yeah 150 uk pounds so probably at that point it'll be about 200 ada and i'll have to see if it works at that price. The Certainly not uh, expensive for a shirt of that quality, but lots of people aren't yet conditioned to buying themselves expensive clothes. So hopefully, I can onboard a, a new cohort of people who, who like to treat themselves nicely and buy themselves shiny things.
0: Absolutely. And why did you decide to use Cardano instead of another alternative like ETH or Matic? Yeah, so Ethereum
1: on the layer 1 of ethereum it, it just simply wouldn't work sending people an nft with a shirt it's like you pay $200 for the shirt and then $120 to to get the nft i just don't yeah. i don't think the usability of that works particularly and,
0: and can you explain what that $120 is what what gas is for folks who might who might not be familiar
1: so gas is basically you you're paying someone's electricity bill for them to mine the ethereum blocks so it's, it's literally just <laughs> you're paying for electricity. The trouble is, is Ethereum is just a victim of its own success. And it, it grew beyond anything that they could have conceived of at the time, I think, when they launched it and just became way too popular. So it's it's just a fee. It's just a fee to use the network. The Layer 2 stuff, I haven't explored that hugely. Cardano just seems to me that it, it works. You can buy an NFT and the transaction fee will be like one, dollars. $1, so actually when you're sending out NFTs on bulk, that makes a huge difference.
0: And that $1 or $2, is that again going to the miners who are running the blockchain?
1: Yeah, so that's going to the, the validators. So Validated. the stakeholders is proof of stake, running proof of work.
0: If you're able to, could you explain the difference of proof of stake and proof of work? I'll give it my best shot. So proof of stake, proof
1: of work, you're solving the problem of how do you secure... The blockchain because a blockchain is a distributed network. Basically loads of computers are having to agree on who's got what money. So what we're trying to stop is me getting 51% of the computers on the network and saying Will's got all the Bitcoin. Too bad everybody else. So how do you stop that? You need a way a basically a, a cost of people being able to run uh, something which validates blocks and submits transactions to the blockchain. So what bitcoin innovation there is the the proof of work so to be able to submit a block you have to solve a very difficult equation so you need a really large amount of computing power to do that so for you to get 51 percent of the bitcoin network you need to spend just an ungodly fee on computing power to be able to do that so bitcoin ethereum they're secured by the computing power of the network proof of stake says okay that's Good, but it you know it's just enormously energy intensive. How people are able to validate a block, submit transactions, is they have to control a certain amount of stake. Now, the proof of work argument would be proof of work is more secure, and you know there there could be problems with proof of stake. But still, to be able to submit a, to be able to falsify the record on the blockchain, you still need to control fifty-one percent of the currency on the blockchain. So, proof of stake is sort of the the third generation blockchain, it's things like Cardano, Polkadot, blockchains like that are using it. The argument would be it doesn't have the security history of something like proof of work. But then we start to move into game theory and all this stuff, which is beyond my understanding. So some of it I yeah. have to take on trust. But it, it seems that it's working so far.
0: Seems like it's working so far. It's really exciting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It'll be crazy yeah, to see where things go from here.
1: But this is this is the thing as well as it's realizing that I'm you're still on a very non-consensus bet here. If you're going largely in the direction of crypto, I could be completely wrong. Crypto could be a passing fad. All the people that said it sucks and it's rubbish, they could all potentially be right. It's nothing's for certain, which is why you see you know enormous volatility within the crypto market. <laughs> betting on NFTs, betting on crypto, it's still sort of an outsider bet at this point, which is why. It's an interesting one because if you're right, then it pays because you're mm-hmm. early and you're you're willing to back a non-consensus, non-main, well, pretty mainstream, but certainly the majority of people aren't using crypto yet by a long shot. And the broader crypto bet is that they will. The bet against it is that they won't. So it's how much sure. certainty do you have on on either side of that coin flip?
0: You know, as we recording this january 24th 22 there's been a lot of concerns around inflation and devaluation of the dollar and you know what happens there and so it'll be interesting because we're certainly going to hit another recession at some point and i believe in the not too distant future but regardless the economy moves in cycles it's going to happen at some point and so yeah. the question is will crypto benefit from that or not because you know obviously the crypto bulls their argument is it's better than fiat currency for all the plethora of reasons that they'll list out ad nauseum. But at the end of the day, when a black swan event occurs and the global financial system, which is so integrated today, takes a big hit. Just there's so much unpredictability that results.
1: Yeah, I think as it stands today, number go down. Who knows? I think long term I'm I'm extremely bullish about blockchain technology within the next six months. I don't know. I, <laughs> I couldn't tell you whether it goes up or goes down. It seems to me that if we have a big global recession, people are going to have less money available to to invest. So that will hit crypto prices along with everything else. It's, what do you think will maintain more value throughout that and come out the other side better? I don't know. I just make shirts, dude. I'm, I'm not so-
0: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, and I think to your point about, you know, who knows what happens long term, I think that's certainly... True for which specific tokens will perform and which exchanges and which projects will take off. But I'm pretty confident at this point that some of these important concepts like blockchain, like immutability, like cryptography are going to stay. They're just too important. They're too game changing. And there's so many incredible applications that we haven't even begun to think about for all of them. Yeah, I think it, it seems that adoption is growing and growing and use cases are
1: growing and growing and there's there's more ways to use and to interact with these protocols and there's more people who are interested in of using them and interacting with them and more people building on them, more people creating solutions on them. So that metric is the one which I think is important rather than the sort of the short-term speculation on it mm-hmm. because still most of people's engagement with cryptocurrencies is just a way of speculating of saying okay i'm going to put money here or or there They're they're not actually using the networks you know like on ethereum to carry out financial transactions or buy nfts but the more people use the networks for those things that's ultimately what drives value of the networks in the long term and it seems to me that more and more and more people are building on that and the thing is, is they'll be there whether it's going up or it's going down and that's long term which uses it so it's like you know it'd be great for me if i can onboard users to the blockchain because now they have a reason to use it to get these nfts to buy these shirts rather than just to to invest or or gamble depending on your approach but yeah i think that the more applications and use cases are created i think that's what drives value of these networks long term i mean other, other than you know bitcoin has has a single use case which is preserving value and I think it's it's shown its ability to do that quite well at this point. As long as you don't need your money tomorrow, if you're thinking in longer time frames, barring a black swan, I think Bitcoin is inevitable at this point.
0: And as you talk about use cases and applications, that's part of what gets me so excited about some of these virtual reality applications and gaming use cases of NFTs. Like some of the stuff that they're doing with Decentraland, and just it's so cool too how just kids these days are so connected and, and understand this stuff better than we do and and are able to start building some stuff at such a young age now so it's really cool to see
1: yeah the thing the thing which i I find really cool particularly about the nft part of it is that it's like this new global culture is forming and you can be part of it and everyone says good morning to each other on nft twitter and it's like this, this new culture is being created and it's like renaissance is happening and before, like, the Italian Renaissance, you you needed to be in Florence. If you look at, like, any of these big creative leap forwards in art and culture throughout history, they, they were place-dependent, whereas it seems that the NFT thing is, like, a global culture which is forming. And mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know, that seems like the first time that's happening. And I think, you know, there's been an acceleration with COVID and people working remotely, people forming mm-hmm. communities mm-hmm. remotely. And then you're, you're, you're doing business transactions with these people. You're selling JPEGs with each other. You're, you're creating and selling things which each other find valuable and often not knowing a person's real identity, just knowing their their Twitter handle or, or the JPEG that they use as their profile picture. So this, this new global artistic, cultural, commercial culture is being bootstrapped from the ground up. And I don't know if that doesn't excited about like the potential that could come from these networks, and I, I don't know what else will.
0: You know, it's so interesting to hear that your perspective on it too, Will, because I've been thinking a lot lately that just the 20s feel like the 60s, right? And and in that, I mean, like like you're talking about, it just feels like this cultural renaissance is happening, and I think it's this confluence of democratizing finance, of having immediate access to whatever content people anywhere in the world want to produce, and letting that letting the stuff that's so good you can't ignore it's able to now filter to the top and then from my world you see that cannabis and then now psychedelics is legalizing and, and people are really having the opportunity to explore conscious thought in ways that they haven't in the past it's just it's a really exciting time to be alive
1: yeah i mean if you would go to the the maxi route you'd say that that bitcoin gives people freedom and that freedom is the same that freedom to be in charge of your own finances to be sovereign as an individual and that does tie to that counterculture of people wanting to be free people wanting to be individuals which happened in the 60s but yeah i think we you know we we go around in like a loop in history it doesn't repeat but it rhymes and you can't go through these different phases and i think you know we've had quite a constrictive restrictive few years i think around the world for a lot of people and i think a lot of people were some people are chaf- chafing against that and are wanting to be more free than perhaps they've been. And yeah, you know, the psychedelic renaissance is happening, people becoming more interested in expanded consciousness. I don't know if that ties over massively, that crowd with like the Bitcoin crowd. I'd say like Jim probably <laughs> ties over more, but yeah, I, th- I think all these things, we revisit all these ideas and, anytime you need to have accelerated cultural change so you look at like the invention of the printing press that led to the breakup of the catholic church like the enormous power structure of the day mm-hmm. was dismantled just because people could distribute information in a new way and you look at you know how the internet and social media has affected our culture and the blockchain is just the the latest iteration of that and as we go higher up the scale, the spin, the tick becomes faster. So if you look at the time from like the agricultural revolution to the industrial revolution, that's quite a lot. But then each technology we spin to the next level of technology quicker. So the blockchain is like the new epoch that we're just turning into. And so, yeah, it, it will change just as every other technological revolution has changed the face of society. So the blockchain will do, do just the same.
0: Well, Well, that was... Such a fun conversation. I think that's a great place to wrap it up. So thank you again for coming on the show today. It's been a blast.
1: No, dude. Pleasure's mine. Cool. Cool conversation. I hope I made at least some sense when I was explaining cryptography. (laughs) I hope I did it at least some
0: justice. Sorry. No, I think it's honestly the best explanations are typically from people who are non-technical because it's just like you can get so lost in the... Jargon that it's impossible to understand what's actually happening or why these concepts are so important.
1: Yeah, well, I, I think that's. It, it seems to me it's happening in in the blockchain space at the moment. Is it's moving from engineers sometimes are interested in things just because of their engineering brilliance and don't need anything more than that. Like a beautifully engineered thing is complete because it's beautifully engineered. But people are now looking at okay, how does this actually affect the world more broadly, and yeah that's where i come in i i mean the intelligence level of some of these concepts i I can get so far as understanding okay blockchain okay transactions ordered in a block you need to decide who validates the block but then once you start looking at these like level two scaling solutions and stuff like that the people in this space are so wickedly smart and that's yeah. why that's what appealed to me about it is i think it's nice to be the dumbest guy in the room and i can certainly feel that way sometimes so yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, awesome. Well, thanks again, and uh, we'll be in touch soon. No, my pleasure, dude. Great to chat to you. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. After having this conversation with Will and the chat with my friend Jeremy a few weeks back, I started to rethink my relationship with clothing. Anyone who knows me well could confirm that Fashion Sense has never been my strong suit. So in recent years, I've attempted to make up for this lack of style by using monthly clothing delivery services like Stitch Fix in order to follow the latest fashion trends at a reasonable price. But after these discussions highlighted the economics of the fast fashion model and how predatory they can be for the workers creating the clothing, I decided to cancel my subscription and take a new approach to clothing, an approach focused on finding high-quality clothes made by skilled craft workers and working to maintain that clothing instead of tossing it out at the first sign of wear and tear. Will's story and the work he's doing at Origin Thread helped me to recognize yet another instance of the negative effects of our materialistic society. It gives me incredible inspiration to see the work Will and others are doing to leverage NFTs to rethink economic models and ensure wealth is redistributed to those most deserving and most in need of those economics. I look forward to seeing the creative projects other founders create leveraging NFTs and cryptocurrencies, and we'll have to check back in five years to see if Will's prediction that everyone owns an NFT in five years has come true.
2: You only wanted lemonade And I've been standing here in plain view But you always keep me in the shade And I could be your alibi If you wanted to give it a try Surely never lost your you You only wanted lemonade And the ringing of the telephone Doesn't answer even when so if I could be your night in white, you could check up on me every night. Will you let me be your alibi or pass up on it every time? Surely never meant to find you. He only wanted lemonade. You got that fire path, look in your eye, staring at me like it's In your life, searching for it. That you'll ever learn. Eventually, I walk away. If I don't hear you ever say, I see you in a brand new light. It's time that we give this a try. Shona never asked about you. he only wanted lemonade. You got that fire look in your eye, staring at me. about you he only wanted lemonade and I've been standing here in plain view but you always keep me in the shade just once please look my way you got that front catch look in your right. eyes